there and welcome to the Nine O'Clock Show weekly podcast. It's a compilation of our best interviews from the past week. The moment a Dublin firefighter was on hand to help save a fellow GAA player when he went into sudden cardiac arrest, London Irish woman Jackie O'Donovan talks about her Irish roots and becoming the boss of the family business at age 19. Fanula Flanagan joined me in studio ahead of performing in John B. Keane's Sive at the Gaiety Theatre. The former model and expose presenter Michelle Doherty talks openly about infertility and the decision to go to rehab. And on Friday's show, Tracy Clifford on the must-see Irish music and international festivals for the year ahead. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. Last September in Fairview Park in Dublin, one man found himself suffering a sudden cardiac arrest while playing GAA for his club Cree Row Nafa, and he's on the line now. Derek O'Connor, good morning to you. Morning, Derek. How's it going? I'm good. How are you this morning? Not too bad, not too bad. And I mean, normally when you say, how are you, it, it, it's kind of you expect, ah, yeah, I'm Grant, but how are you? Oh, yeah. You're, you're I'm all recovered anyway, yeah? You're all rec- are you eating your breakfast? Well, yeah, I am, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, we hope you're eating something healthy when we're going to tell the story that you're going to tell us now. No, I want to tell you. <laughs> what happened last September in that, that day in Fairview Park? What, what happened that morning before it? Um, just grew up like a, like a normal day. We had been up the night beforehand, a bit late, so grew up a bit tired that day, so we just took it out being being tired. And then, um, as I went, my brother, my brother's son was having having a birthday, so we went down there, dropped the present off, and it was a bit late for the match, so just went to the inside the hall and seen my brother himself, and he said to me, James, you don't look too well. And I says, I just put it down to being tired, it was just a blade. And I was opening a bleeding can of monster then when he seen me, and I says, this thing will bleed, this thing will kill me, if I'll drop on the field if I have this thing. And little did I know what bleeding did. Well, and, then, and just to point out, you, you, the reason you'd been up late, Sorry? The reason you'd been up late the night before is because your your girlfriend was pregnant at the time and, and wasn't yes, well. You yes, weren't out. You yes. weren't out. No, no, we really go out. Um, the girlfriend was up. I'm sure it was. The, I'm sure it was uh, up with the girlfriend. Yes, yeah, she was pregnant. It was either that or I was up playing the game. One of them I was. Yeah. <laughs> listen, just say the girlfriend because that's what you need to say. Yeah, Don't say you were up playing listen, games. I did say it. I, I said it to a chap writing an article there the other day. The missus read the article and she pulled me the next day saying. You didn't do that. You're all playing the game, but I'll say I was up. Okay, because this is not li- this is not live on the radio to three three hundred and sixty thousand people, so you'll be fine. Uh, but look, this is quite quite. <laughs> um, and do you mind me asking how old you are, Derek? I was t- twenty-three. So you're a young man. You're a very young man. Yeah. So you put you it down. Enough, you put it down to being tired, and you go out to play the game. What happens? It was like any like any other day. I was group. You're getting ready. Few stretches, wherever else. To be honest, to be honest, I, I can really remember it now. I only remember going back to replay the match like 10, 10 probably eight to ten weeks later. I remember walking back onto the field, but other than that, I can't remember much. Like I still to this day, I still can't remember that. And I just from other people's perspective, we can from what I was told. Like that's all I remember. Well, it's very important to to say that you scored a goal during that match before this happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's that's every, everybody said that's what did it. That's what did it for me. That's very important. It's a rare that you scored a goal. Like. <laughs> well, you were playing. You were playing against St. Joseph's, and Paul Moore, who's a player, was on the sideline. Paul, good morning to you. 
How are you now, Shay? So, Paul, you, you, good morning to you. You might you, just to say that you are a firefighter as well. That you work with the, the with the fire brigade and, and, and the ambulance service, um, and the yeah, Dublin yeah. Fire Brigade ambulance. Um, so you're standing on the sideline. He's just scored a magnificent goal. And what happens next? You see him. Well, uh, I don't remember too much about the goal, Shay. To be honest, but uh, we, were getting, <laughs> we, were well, we, were, we were getting well beaten at the time, you know. So, uh, and um, so uh, the. All I heard was a uh, commotion on the other side of the pitch. So I turned around and uh, straight away I seen Derek on the ground. He didn't look good, you know. So we ran straight across. And when I got there, um, there was a bit of panic, you know. There was a couple of lads standing around him and he didn't look well at all, you know. So in, just with my experience on the and stuff, uh, I thought straight away, I said, this doesn't look good, you know. Uh, so checked his pulse. Um, he had no pulse, so he was in cardiac arrest. And uh, I just started doing uh, CPR, chest compression, straight away. And he was, and, uh, he was, was he still vaguely conscious at this stage? As you, no, no, he, he was. was uh, he was like it was like seizure, it's cardiac arrest. When you when you're going into cardiac, it's nearly like uh, seizure-like activity. You know, um, he's just shaking basically and agonal respirations. Um, so he's, he's trying to his body is trying to breathe, but it, it's not it's not proper breaths. You know, and. Um, so basically, I just knew straight away from seeing it in work a couple of times, you know, uh, that he was in cardiac arrest. What, 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 did you, what instructions did you issue to the people around you? You started CPR, well, what did you say to the people around you? I just you? asked the lads to try and find a defib, uh, defibrillator, you know. Um, I said, try the dressing rooms, shops. Um, I said, ring an ambulance straight away. Like, we were only across the road in North Sound Forest Station, uh, thankfully, so... Yeah, so um, so for people who don't know Fairview Park, it's on the north side of Dublin. It's on what what just off the Malahide yeah. Road, heading for the Artane Roundabout. So yeah, it's about, yeah, it's yeah. about a five minute drive from town. But your fire station is the next. So the next junction is your fire station, or oh, the yeah, North you Strand. Can, you're not your fire yeah. station, but the next. You can is see the, the fire station from the park. You know. Yeah. So the lads, the lads go. The, the lads go into action and start running around the shops. Where do they get a defib? So uh, I think they tried the dressing rooms. They couldn't see one in the dressing rooms. So I think, as far as I know, they ran across the Tesco. Correct. And they got one at Tesco. It's just there at Fairview, you know. It's just directly and, across. Um, right. So well done to, to Tesco and any other people yeah. who have uh, defibs yeah. there. So the defib comes back to you. What happens? Um, basically, the, the defib was given to me, and I just I put the pads on, and uh, the, the defib was able to tell me that Derek was in uh, a VF arrest, and I hit the button to, to shock him, and I got a shock in, and um, that restarted his heart, um, but he, he went into cardiac arrest again. And just uh, as the ambulance was pulling up, we put uh, we gave him another shock, and he got his heart going again, and uh, just got him into the matter straight away. Um, so there was crews there from Norwich, and actually a crew from Fisborough arrived as well with advanced paramedics. They were able to give him some more drugs and stuff, you know, to so keep they, him going till they, till they got him into the, the matter hospital. So those heart first aid drugs, which can be in the golden few minutes, can be very important. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. And there's more and more advanced uh, paramedics in the in the city. Yeah, well, um, in in Dublin Fire Brigade at the moment, um, they're constantly training up lads all the time to upskill to advanced paramedic level. You know, and um, same with the HSE, the HSE. Yeah, and that's programs going on as well. Implemented around and, around the country. Yeah, the, you, you, I know you're trying to make sure there's a couple um, on the watch at any time. You know, so they can administer those drugs. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Look, I know you're an experienced firefighter, but you must have got a shock yourself. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I've, I've never seen that now outside of work, you know. So it was, it was, it was a bit of a bit of a fright, all right. You know, you don't expect that to happen in, in the middle of a football match on a nice sunny day, like so. Um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock, but uh, 
Thankfully, Derek made a full recovery. And, I suppose it's you know, important to say about defibs, they are extraordinarily useful and important. Oh, absolutely, items. yeah. They, they don't necessarily work in every case. No, but um, without the defib, we wouldn't have got Derek's heart going again. You know, you can yeah. do CPR all day, but you need the electrical shock to restart the heart. You know, that's if that's the, where the, the if CPR that's, is just keeping it going until you get the defib on. Yeah, keeping you know, it, keeping the, the, the brain supplied with oxygen. But yeah, exactly. But, but if it isn't, yeah. it isn't an event, a cardiac event that re, that is an electrical event as such, then the defib won't be. But the defib will tell you yeah. if it's needed to be used. So it's very, very, yeah. very, very, very exactly. important. Yeah, you can't give a shock to a person with a, with a heart that's beating normally. You know. Yeah. The, the machine, the brilliant machines, won't allow you yeah. to do it now yeah. as well. Derek, what happened when you? I, I know you only found out afterwards, but what was the outcome of your visit to the matter? Then your emergency visit to the matter. What happened? Jeez, it took me it took me at least two or three days to to wake to waken up. Like I was on, I was heavily sedated, so it took me a fair few days to waken up and realise what actually happened. Because when I woke up, I think. Um, the doctors and whatever else were telling them, look, don't tell them what happened or anything because I think it was very high blood pressure and my heart rate was going. So I think they told him, just take a calm, let, don't let him know. So a few days later, he told me, and again, I was quite shocked. Like, because I consider myself a fit young employed, be going heavily on the roof as well. So I, I'm fairly, fairly active. So don't say you're a roofer, we've been on that. It was quite a shock, already, yeah. It is a shock. And what, what did they do? What was the treatment? Um, Jesus, eh? Uh, uh, did you get a stent? Yeah, I was in ICU for a few days to just keep me just trying to down for a few days and trying to get me regularly back to normal. Well, I'll just give you, they, they looked after you and I just, because I have it from the article that you were in and it's, it said they inserted a small stent into your heart as well and that opened up yeah, the yeah, artery. Yeah, we have put a stent into the heart. Because they found that you, you had, thing, because you're, look, look, we all have history of, of a heart disease somewhere in the family if you look back. Your dad, unfortunately, died of a heart attack at what age? Um, I believe I believe it was 62, yes. I'm not the greatest bleed memory now, but I believe it was 62. It was like two, two and a half years ago, was it? Yeah? yeah. So it's still quite fresh. Like. Of course it is. So something like that that happened. Something yeah. like that that happened. So hopefully, it's about thirty-three. Like it's it's madness. It is. Yeah. So hopefully, you're 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 spreading the word now about getting your heart checked. Oh, as well. listen! Every every chance I get, every chance I get, them defibs, them defibs, or you don't realize how much you need them till you actually need them. Like. Yeah. And That's it, crucial. And like I said, probably ninety-nine percent of the people that drop and have a heart attack don't have a fireman beside them. So. He's your he's your personal fireman now, you know that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And do you keep in Went touch? I had a few points on him and all afterwards. He's a bleeding top man, he is. <laughs> you certainly are. Paul, You're when you arrive, right? can I ask you a question, Paul? When you arrive on scene um, with the ambulance or with the fire brigade uh, at a cardiac event, do you uh, in public? Do you often see the machine has been the defib machine has been deployed? Sometimes you would now, not not too often, you know, because most of the cardiac arrests you would attend would be in houses, so. Very rarely you'd see someone with one in the house, you know. Yeah. yeah. But uh, like in public, you might see one, you know. If uh, same as Derek, if something happens near the shop, or you know, it, it's great. It's great when they're on site, you know. But uh, as I said, most of the most of the cardiac arrests we go to would be in in private houses, so we wouldn't see it too often, you know. And Derek, are you back playing? Well. It was it was like two or three games till the end of the season, so I had to sit out and watch. I had to sit out and watch the end of the season. So the, I think this, the start of the season is starting back in March now, and I'm definitely going to start that again. Yeah, 
Good man, good man. Sure, I'm sure you were a great loss to the club when you weren't. You weren't there. <laughs> I don't think so. I they, don't think so. They weren't winning. And just to say, the GAA are looking to promote are, are promoting the ACT uh, campaign to ensure heart safety at clubs accessible, charged, trained. That goes for the defib machine. And Paul, I know that you'd echo that. Yeah, absolutely. Like to, to have it in, a, in an accessible area, like it's very important. And also, just um, quick access. The time is critical, so you want to you want to get the defib on straight away. And uh, just check it's charged every week. Every week. Test. It's really yeah. important. So yeah. give, give that job to somebody in the club. Make sure they do yeah. it as well. So Derek O'Connor, uh, survivor, player for Cray, Cree Nafa, uh, Roe Nafa, and Paul Moore, firefighter and player for St. Joseph's uh, GA Club. Thanks for joining us this morning. Now, my next guest comes from a strong West Cork stock. She's never had a job interview in her life, but she took over the helm of a company which she became the managing director at the age of 19. And she joins me this morning from BBC Wogan House to tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Jackie O'Donovan. Good morning. How are you this morning? Yeah, very good, thank you. Well, we're expecting minus five here. How's the weather in London? Minus five. It was crisp this morning as I left home. That's a nice way of putting it, isn't it? Crisp. Mm, and very crisp. <laughs> to get through the London traffic as well. Yeah, yeah. It is a nightmare. So we're going to get to where you are now, but let's start at the very beginning. Tell us about mum and dad. Where did they come from? Uh, both my parents uh, were born in a village called Goline in West Cork, uh, down by the Mizzenhead. And uh, my dad then moved at the age of five to Drimmer League, which is still West Cork. And they were... Uh, they met in the dance hall in Skibbereen and the rest, as I say, was history. They went to, to London for the... Dad went and then sent the money back for my mum and my mum followed him back over. So they arrive in London, so it's around, what, 19... Uh, late 50s? Late 50s, yeah. Um, early 60s, then my um, older brother came along and then my sister... And they went back to Ireland. They tried to make a go of it. Didn't work. Came back over again. And en route, my next brother was born. He's uh, He was born in Dublin. And uh, Dad started his own business up and in demolition first. And then he went into waste management. And unfortunately, we lost him at the young age of 51 in 1985 mm. uh, when we were all quite um, young. I was only 17 at the time. And where, where was the business base? Where did they emigrate to in, in London? It was, nor- well, we were all bought, born in Kilburn or County Kilburn, as we fondly know <laughs> it as. Um, and then we moved over to North London, but Dad's Yard. Uh, first of all, he started off at King's Cross, where the British Library is now. And then he went to Gospel Oak, which was John Murphy's Yard. Um, and, yeah, we went to various other places and we've ended up in Tottenham. Well, people will be familiar with those places. And, of course, the Galtie Moor. I met her at the Galtie Moor. Yeah, or the forum. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you're, showing you're, my age now. <laughs> no, not at all. Your, your dad, your dad, um, he, like it's a tough business to get into, and he got into waste disposal. He he was, but he was well well received in in the area. He was well got, as they say. Oh yeah, no, he was yeah massively. He was probably one of the biggest biggest players at the time in his era. Um, he was known as Generous Joe um, to all the other people in the industry. But yeah, he was um, massive in in that in that industry in London in those days. Why was he called Generous Joe? Because he was probably too generous, really, if the truth be known. Um, But, yeah, Dad just had that um, generosity streak going through him. Uh, You know, we'd always have a waif or a stray sitting at the Christmas table with us um, or in the car going back to West Cork for holidays. Um, So, yeah, Dad always uh, always picked... uh, 
picked up the ones that needed help. I'm guessing that when Irish people arrived in London and they needed a job, your dad's phone number was probably in their pocket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a few stories I could tell you there, yeah. Uh, people pretending they were cousins to get where they were to, uh, in those days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you come along within the... So where do, you, where do you place within the family? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. You're the youngest. Yeah. And so it's a family business, so everybody has to get involved. Yeah, we um, we all got involved. I mean, it was such a shock, I suppose. None of us really thought about, uh, particularly me and my sister, we didn't probably think about even going into the business. Um, but when you know, Dad went so young, Mum was only 48, so it was a massive shock. Sure. But, uh, it but, was all shoulders to the wheel. Absolutely. But but it wasn't, you weren't a stranger to the business. You were there from a young age. Yeah, no. Yeah, that was our uh, weekend. That was our pocket money. We had to go to the office and, and clean the office. Uh, so mum used to drag us down to clean the office at the weekend. So, oh, did you ever Hard work, did hard you, work at a young age. We were probably driving, driving machines as well at some stage. I was. I actually, um, I'll tell you who taught me to drive a lorry at 11 was Johnny Rotten's dad. <laughs> he drove for my dad and subsequently drove for us then when dad died uh, for many, many years. Ah, yeah. Did you get to meet Johnny? Yeah, yeah. He'd done a video actually in the um, in the yard, and his brother had a band called Four B Two. They'd done a video in the yard as well uh, in Gospel Oak yeah, in Murphy's yard. You weren't joking when you said there was a few stories to be told. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> but you, 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 your mind was on business. So I, there was a great story about your dad saving up petrol tokens. Yeah, yeah, he used to, um, in those days, he used to get the, the tokens at the petrol station and he used to gather them all up and he'd bring me home uh, like a really plasticky, cheap, tat um, briefcase. But back in them days, it was probably, it looked like a, a designer a briefcase and, you know, he used to strut around the kitchen with it, dreaming about being in this big office block uh, when I was uh, grown up. I suppose with, with, unfortunately, when your dad passed in 1985, there's four of you and there's an older brother. And I suppose in, in, in terms of, say, Irish families, the, the older brother would be the one to be expected to take over. Yeah, um, yeah, the, the, you mean, and we, we actually thought that, that, that Michael, uh, the older brother, would just take on, on the reins. Uh, but then when dad died, it was it was just a different kettle of fish. He was, he was only 23. Uh, he was out in the lorry, uh, so we had to downsize. So we downsized, um, and then the two boys went out driving the lorries, and uh, my sister went off to have my niece, and I was left in the office, and then we got somebody that went to school with us to come into the office, and there was two of us in the office, and it just naturally fell to me in the office to make the phone calls and do the paperwork. So it wasn't a... a, a a deliberate decision. It wasn't something we sat around the table. I just took, I just took the reins and and got on with it basically. I think sometimes, and I, I know from experience with family businesses, that that uh, hierarchy of an older, the older brother, the person who's supposed to take it, that could be a terrible weight on people's shoulders. Yeah, I, I think um, I think everybody was looking at my older brother uh, as a mini dad, and my older brother's uh, got an awful lot of um, attributes and. I think it was unfair. He was only three weeks married, so it was a massive shock to him. And of course, he was he was working with Dad for years and years, so it caused a massive void in 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 his life, uh, you know, as much as the rest of us. But obviously, he was working longer with him. But yeah, I think I think it was it was expected that he would he would take the business on, um, and he he had. Uh, uh, 
a massive key role in the business, as did the two in the middle. Um, we all sort of took our lanes, and I suppose my lane just seemed to be the one that was more public to people um, because I'd have to go to working groups or um, meetings or go and see the bank manager and things like that because the boys were out on the road in the early days. So I, it wasn't anything deliberate. It was just it's just how, how, how it fell, how the cards fell, I suppose. And, you know, uh, people do say about family businesses, but we've worked harmoniously together for... I don't say how many years it's that long. Uh, you know, well over 35. Um, and, and we've never had a massive fallout. And it's, you know, to the point where we actually socialise together. So I think we're very lucky that we've been able to have that relationship as a family and have the experience of, you know, growing up and bringing up our families, you know, entwined yeah. with each other. Uh, a lot of people say, oh, well, God, I couldn't even have my brother over for Christmas Day. You know, that's enough for me. But no, we, we socialise and work together and have done. Yeah, it's it's amazing, yeah. It must have been hard for you, though, sitting in the office at 17, um, with Dad gone and probably reminders of him everywhere. Because you, you were quite close to your dad. Yeah, I was Daddy's little girl. Um, I suppose I, I wasn't in the office at 17. I stayed at home to look after Mum. We were worried about Mum. So it was probably knocking the 18, 19, I got into the office. And, yeah, it... It was a different office. I had to, one of the first or second challenges I had was we, we got marching orders out of our yard. So we had to get another yard and I actually signed a 10-year lease for the office that we're still in now, actually. And so we're knocking on 38 years in there. And a 19-year-old signing a lease for 10 years is like signing your life away. And how did the bank treat you when you went in to, to meet them? Well, I didn't have the Irish accent. Uh, I was the wrong sex and I didn't play golf. So I didn't have a lot going for me, unfortunately. Because you were dealing with an Irish bank. I was dealing with an Irish bank. Well, the first Irish bank told us uh, that none of us uh, were ever going to follow in our father's footsteps uh, or be able to have uh, the business acumen that he had. Uh, so they closed our account down. So we had to go to another Irish bank over in England and um, join them. And it took absolutely years and years of very good numbers to finally convince the bank manager that actually I did know what I was doing and we all were behind the business and it was we were growing year on year uh, and then he decided to resign retire <laughs> okay yeah so you start you start all over again no no told him wasn't doing my I had my old plates on for him I wasn't going to put them back on for the next manager <laughs> He just needed to look at the numbers. I can hear the steel in your voice there. Michael <laughs> Michael was out on the truck. Caroline and, and Anthony were doing other things within the business. But but you were in the yard and, and if anybody has been in a waste disposal yard, it's a busy place with trucks coming and going, collections, deliveries. Uh, and look, let's face it, particularly in the, in the 1980s, a lot of male dominated kind of conversations and uh, viewpoints in the yard. How did you deal with that? I just got on with it. I suppose back then in the 80s, the male domination piece wasn't really a thing. Um, I didn't know it was a male-dominated industry. It wasn't something that was 
you know, I was coming across. Um, I was office-based. I was answering the phone. There was only two of us in the office, so I didn't get out that much. Um, so I suppose it would be the odd bank meeting to the bank uh, or the bank would be coming in and, until we started to get bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and, and the business grew and grew. And then I realised, I mean, even today, I could still go into a meeting and be the only uh, female operator in the room with 20 or 30 other men. So business starts to boom and everybody seems to find some, something something to do within the business, which they still do today. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we all had major roles. So my sister headed up the busiest uh, departments that was doing over 50% of the turnover. Um, my older brother uh, was picking and choosing the vehicles and where we were going to buy yards and, and looking after the drivers. And then the other brother was going between uh, different the yards, looking after the yards and banking and such things. How do you find time for yourself at that stage? Though You're such so young in the business and, and probably the business is seven days a week at that stage. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's seven days a week, twenty four seven. It's it's you. You don't when when you're in business and you're running a business. You know, there is no work life balance. You know, work is my life, and I absolutely love my work. I wouldn't have it any other way. I I every day is different, and every day brings a new challenge, and every day I learn something new. And it's just, yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world. But you you did manage to find somebody to to marry and have a child as well. Yeah, I, uh, I got married and I had a lovely bouncing baby boy who I named after my dad, Joseph. Oh. And yeah, and then I got postnatal depression and my marriage ended when Joseph was three months old. Three months? Three months, yeah. So I had postnatal depression for about three and a half years. Okay. But it just wasn't something that was discussed in those days. Very much a, a taboo subject, I suppose, at that stage massively to boot because you know it was always oh you know you know so and so she had 15 kids in the trot and you know you've only got one so you know you've got to get on with it it was that sort of mentality maybe this is where, where having family around comes in as an advantage oh massively yeah I mean I couldn't I couldn't have managed uh, without my mum I mean my mum was my saving grace uh, and my son is the man he is today because of uh, both me and my mum so raised by the raised by the family the extended family yes but you, and did you have time for to, to, to go to school, to bring him to school or to do that stuff while you're trying to manage a massive business? Yeah, I did know. Um, I it, religiously took him to school each and every morning. Uh, he was never late, I might add, uh, from the whole of his school term. And uh, he was uh, very sporty, so he played all the sports at school and I would go to all the matches on the Saturday and then he played rugby on Sunday and I would go to all them. Um, so, yeah, you know the taxi mum the taxi oh, so, yeah. but I absolutely loved it yeah I absolutely loved it uh, the only one game I couldn't stick was cricket so I used to bring my paperwork with me do my paperwork when everybody started clapping I'd look up and start clapping yeah <laughs> tedious tedious sport don't know how anybody does it but never mind uh, well, how's he doing now? yeah he's doing very well now yeah he's just starting out on a on a new career he's just finished uh, university he went to America for university and um, yeah he's he's very good did you get to go over and see him? Oh, I went very regularly. Yeah. Once, nearly once a month. Once a month? I've only got one. Yeah, I used to go out on the, the five o'clock flight on Friday and come back in on the red eye Sunday night, straight into work, yeah. Oh, he was spoiled, wasn't he? Well, yeah, well, it was probably more me than wanted to go than rather than him wanted to see me because we used to call each day. But yeah, yeah, you've, I've only got one. 
Did you do his washing? Yeah, oh, cool, yeah, yeah. Gosh, did you? Yeah. yeah, I did, yeah, yeah. And thank God they had big washing machines in America, yeah. Yeah, I think he's washing and about five others. I used to just be loading washing machine from the time I arrived to the time I left, yeah. <laughs> You're a bit like your dad bring, bringing strays back to Cork as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So the business now, O'Donovan Waste, actually we have a lovely text in for you as well. There's some great videos on YouTube of O'Donovan's trucks and machines, especially the restored trucks to re- that reflect the fleet over the years. There's also great banter with uh, Darren Asheville on his channel. Fair play to the family that came in this morning. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my brother's got um, a vintage collection of uh, vintage lorries that go back to the time where he learnt to drive at the age of well, probably 13. Uh, yeah. 13. Hopefully not yeah. on the streets. Um, no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but the your Irish heritage is very important to you. Oh, massively. Yeah, massively, yeah. If I had a magic wand, uh, I'd wish for an Irish accent. I just think it's... I just am so proud of my uh, Irish roots and not having an Irish accent. But people don't identify me as being Irish as I would identify as being Irish. Um, but yeah, I just think that... You know, mum and dad's era gave up so much for us to have a better life that if we're not careful, the next generation's going to forget it. And mm. so many people left Ireland to come to England and, and go further afield. And I just think that that fact that they had to leave uh, the shores and, and go and find uh, money and send it back and make a better life for themselves, I think is such an important story and one that should never be forgotten. And we, there's some great London, the, the Irish Centre in London is, is uh, particularly uh, good for meeting people in the diaspora and meeting friends and, and making new friends and maybe keeping in touch with home for people who have just arrived. Yeah, it, is, it's, it does phenomenal work at the London Irish Centre in Camden Town. Uh, they're looking at a massive um, redevelopment project at the moment to be the best uh, Irish Centre in the world. And I have no doubt that they'll achieve it. They've got a great uh, collection of people there the, and... Um, stars, Irish stars that that support the actual project. But you've you've supported it too. You you, you gave some funds to uh, for the archive, is that right? It is, yeah. We we gave the money for them to buy the archive. So it's in Middlesex University, uh, stored in a, a controlled temperature room. Oh. And, yeah. Um and that was actually uh, quite synonymous in itself. So when we went to see the archives that night um at the London Irish Centre uh, a friend of my big brother's, uh, my older brother, uh, was sitting next to him and he, he he actually saw his dad on the screen. It was on one of the clips and he was actually digging. He was a tunnel tiger digging a tunnel next to Shane McGowan's dad. That's amazing. And it was like, yeah, it was like, wow. Um, so, yeah, I think it's so important to keep um, mm. the the memories, yeah. Yeah, and there's a wonderful Irish centre in Hammersmith as well. They've done some great work and they have a great library yeah. there and performance space and I've been there many, many, many times. Are you, are you, an, uh, did you receive the Order of the British Empire? I certainly did, yes. King Charles bestowed it on me on the 19th of December, my favourite time of the year, Christmas. Just 19th of December, just gone? Yep, yep. That was a cherry on the cake for 2023, yep. <laughs> and what's he like? Did you have a nice chat? Yeah, well, my um, my mum was sitting up near the front uh, as she was waiting for me queuing and uh, with my son, and they said that he actually spoke longer to me than he did to the ones before me. Uh, and we were talking about biofuel and getting rid of fossil fuel. 
So, yeah, he's passionate about the sustainability element. Fair well, play to him. I, I can remember many years ago working in a factory and they were, they were a man came in to collect fluorescent tubes in what looked like a plastic coffin. That's what we were. And we kind of gave him a bit of a hard time, you know, was, ah, what's all this? And he said to me, here's the, the, the future. Waste disposal and water. Do you want to invest your money now? That was in the late nineteen eighties. He said that to me, and how wow. right how right he was. He was collecting yeah. those tubes to recycle them at the mm. time when nobody everything was going in the skip. I mean, we used yeah. the, people used to fire the the fluorescent tubes like javelins into the skip for the crack and let them explode. But little did I know that he was exactly right. Your business must have changed from nineteen eighty five when you took over right through to now. The business must be unrecognizable. Oh, totally unrecognizable. Um, you know. 20 years ago, you, you know, you'd go into a room and people go, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, you're in waste. Oh, right, OK, they move on again. They wouldn't want to speak to you. Now everybody is um, aware of it and the, the, the impacts. And I suppose I suppose what's frustrating for me is that people don't understand the full cycle that waste goes through. Um, you know, people... I, the, the biggest one is people often, you know, go on about their wheelie bins outside their house and how they segregate their waste, but then they turn around uh, when I ask them how often it's collected. It's one lorry comes every two weeks. So the, the, they've gone to the trouble of segregating all that waste and it's actually going into the back of one lorry, um, which is like, right, OK. But people don't think further than their wheelie bin but because they don't understand the whole cycle. Exactly. And, and and also contamination of, of when you contaminate waste, that it's, it makes it so difficult to recycle it as well. People cause awful lots of, lot of problems by putting in filthy containers and the wrong waste into the wrong bin. It makes a huge difference. It does. It makes a massive difference. But I think that's down to the people that are trying to educate. I think they're, they're, they're making it too complicated. Aren't you? I'm a firm believer in keep it simple. You know, why make it complicated? If you can say it in a sentence, why use a paragraph? So what's the plan now? The business has been sold. Yep. What are you? What's your plan? Um, I don't intend to leave the industry because I think um, that would be. I don't think I would be able to anyway. I think um, I think I'd miss it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stay in the in the business. Um, I'm probably gonna do a bit of consultancy work, and then I'm gonna go into different areas um, of interest, which are not really associated with waste. But yeah, yeah. Watch this space. Watch this space. And you have a house in Goline. We might see you down there at some stage. Oh yeah, I love it. That's my happy place. <laughs> There's a text from a Jackie for you. I met Jacqueline at the Irish Embassy in London last year. What an amazing, warm, lovely lady and brilliant supporter of all things Irish in the UK. An incredible woman and a great female role model. Well done, Jacqueline. Oh, thank you. Isn't that nice? But look, thank you for yeah. taking the time to give us your story this morning. Uh, Jackie O'Donovan and best of luck with everything in the future. Now, good morning, Fanula. How are you? Good morning. How well, are you? It's lovely to be inside where it's warm. Do you think it's warm in here? Be honest now. Do you think it's I warm do, in here? I do, actually, yes. But well, compared with outside. <laughs> but you see, I, I know, I've done a bit of acting in my time, not very well, and a few musicals in my time. And I know that actors spend a lot of their time in very cold hall, halls, school, yes. school halls, community halls, rehearsing plays. Yes. You don't rehearse in the glamour of the theatre, generally. No, hardly ever. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in the middle of rehearsal at the moment. We are, yes. We're rehearsing Sive, as you know. And um, yes, and we're rehearsing in the uh, cricket club in Rathmines. And I think somebody talked about uh, bringing in a heater 
and and everybody's face lit up. Oh yes, please bring it in immediately. <laughs> That's the glamour of yes, it all. The of glamour, all. yes. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful play. I've seen uh, two productions of it. I've seen it. it's a very popular production for local drama groups as well. Yes, I so I understand. I saw it in the Abbey in uh, nineteen eighty five. I think. And Mary Keane, whose role I have now taken on, um, was wonderful. Wonderful. It's an extra. And Druid had a, a production a number of years ago, which was what Gary Hines uh, directed, which was also a wonderful production. And music became an emphasis and Tommy Tiernan was in it. It's quite a versatile play in terms of interpretation. I know your your, your fellow cast members as well spoke about the, the play and the, the, the young actor who plays Sive mm-hmm. as well. She spoke about being mixed race and how that mm-hmm. brings something slightly different to the to the staging as well. No, it's interesting because uh, it'll bring out, I'm sure, I I hope it will bring out uh, all of the feelings of uh, racism within the audience and, you know, it's bound to. The part you play, the part of of Nan, it's a very, it's a pivotal role within within the play itself. For people who haven't seen the play, you might just give us a little synopsis of that part and maybe of of the part you play. Well, Nana is the only friend that uh, the girl has in the family and she uh, sides with her. And when she discovers that, uh, in fact, she uh, an arranged marriage has been marriage has been arranged with a matchmaker to uh, to marry her off. To, uh, to a very much older man. I mean, a man who, as they say, is closer to the grave than he is to life. And so uh, Nana is the only friend she has and tries to prevent that and tries to appeal to other members of the family, to her son, to do something about it. The other female character within the, the family as such, Mina, uh, your relationship with her is, is again... The, 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 I think there's a great contrast between your relationship with Sive and yes. your relationship with Mina. You're, you're very mean to her. No, well, no, she's very mean to me. <laughs> That's why they call her Mina. <laughs> um, I, I actually think that uh, John B. Keane probably didn't like women very much, you know, no. because uh, Mina is written, Mina's role is written with such savagery and uh, necessary for the play, but written with such savagery that I think, good God, I mean, did he actually know someone who was like that? And uh, and Nana also, Nana can hold her own, and she's very much more experienced with the put-down, you know, and exercises it. And Norma Sheen, who plays uh, Mina, she's a wonderful actor Oh, as she's well. marvellous. She's absolutely marvellous in the, in the piece, yes. And, and the director, Andrew, talked about uh, when, when the actors come to speed, because he was, he was talking about maybe cutting out some of the long monologues and changing things slightly as well. But he said he realised in rehearsal, these monologues, these, they're not really monologues. They're, this, it trips off the tongue of the actors, yes, this, this particular yes. cadence and rhythm. Yes, uh, she's fabulous. And, uh, and, and he, we have made a few little cuts here and there in the play. And, uh, and that's just to help the tempo and move it along. And also, I think it gets somewhat repetitive. So uh, Andrew has been wonderful about that, spotting a, a repetition and moving in to, you know, cut it out before it can spread. <laughs> <laughs> 
Have, have you been in John B's work before? No, I haven't. And uh, it's a great privilege. I, I had the flu when I got here. And so I missed two weeks of rehearsal. And I missed, they all made a trip down to um, uh, Listole and met the family and met Joanna, who has uh, edited and uh, taken care of the uh, publication of the, the play. And um, I, so I missed all of that. And so I'm now madly trying to catch up on my Kerry accent. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you find the inspiration for that? Oh, well, I didn't find inspiration. I just found mimics. <laughs> so I, I actually found a neighbour of mine in uh, Anakura, where I live in Wicklow. And she is from Kerry and she very kindly um recorded all my lines for me and then I found a wonderful actress called Norette who uh, is uh, has has she's from Kerry and so she she read the lines with me and it was wonderful great are you good mimic um I'm not so sure about being a mimic I'm I I think I think there are certain things for instance that I noticed I've got a friend from uh, a friend who was who lived in Palm Springs who was is from Kerry and she uh, I noticed that she couldn't say the war, a word a word with t in it without putting an h after it so that water became water you know water and uh, and and, and, and and there's something wonderful about that. So now I try and say, you know, when I ask for a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yes, it's very rich. I mean, the whole thing, the, 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 the rhythm of the language in it is very rich. And the characters, I, I, the characters are still identifiable, I think, in, in today's society. And that, the, I mean, the, 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 the premise of the play essentially is the sale. Mm-hmm. of a young girl to this older man and the interplay between the family and the pressure from the matchmaker, etc. I don't want to give away too much. Yes. And, and the ending, it's, there's quite a, a, a tragedy to it as well. Oh, yes. Shakespearean, actually. Kind yes. of, uh, Greek, actually. Oh, Greek. <laughs> I mean, it goes back further than Shakespeare. But I think that it, what you say is true, that the, there is it, it, the fact that, I mean, the whole thing depends upon the money. It's the money, the money that's being exchanged buying this young girl, essentially. And uh, that's that takes place today, I'm sure, in one guise or another. Yeah, but this, this but, poor girl is born, to use the phrase that's used in the play, out of wedlock. It's a, 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 a source of great shame to the family. And as I say in this prediction with Shade, she talked about the fact that she's mixed race as well, that that, that element is amplified even more within, within this production. Mm-hmm. Yes, very much so. What tempts you to come back all the time? Because we, we don't see you all the time, but you have a house in Wicklow as well. But getting you back here from sunny L.A. Well, I've, I've moved back. Um, uh, I, I could not... Be, I mean, I have... I'm blessed with uh, be having a dual citizenship so I can still work in the U.S. and live there if I want to, and I do vote there. Um, but I think the writing's on the wall and things are very grim there right now. So I uh, I moved back to Wicklow. I'm sure you were watching the uh, Iowa caucus. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm not uh, an American Republican, so I didn't watch it. But it was absolutely predictable that uh, uh, Donald Trump would triumph and uh, 
come through it. Um, uh, what I'm what I'm most uh, caught up about is that uh, the current president um, has, you know, un- unequivocally given his support to the Israelis and in this war, and uh, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. There are over twenty five thousand people now killed in this war in Gaza, and uh, I just can't. Uh, I can't uh, support that. You've, you've never been shy about speaking out about political issues, whether they be at home or, or, or abroad within the United States. But you mentioned, you mentioned fear there in the United States, and, and that's one of the things that brought you home. Very much so. I think, that, uh, I think it's going down the tubes. I mean, the whole emphasis is on, is on money, 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 money. And you cannot sustain a whole nation the idea of a nation with uh, with the emphasis simply on profit. And, um, I mean, history has proven that. And it, it'll work for a while, but then it, it stops working. And it is usually the poor who suffer. It is usually women and children who suffer, as is, being, as is happening now in, uh, in Gaza. You were happy there for a long time. When you lived in LA, which and I've only been to LA once and I saw some, some things I never expected to see. We're seeing some of it in Ireland now where people live on the streets. Indeed. That must have been difficult to see. Oh, awful to see. Awful and, and shocking. And uh, uh, when you say I was happy there, I was, I was, my career flourished there, that's for sure. And, and so that was, I'm always happier when I'm working. And um, so, so that was, you know, fine for me. But uh, and the fact that I could travel and and basically one of the main reasons for me to be here to move back to Wicklow is that most of my work for the last year and a half, two years, with the exception of a Broadway play I did, but most of it has been in Europe and has been here in Ireland. There's. There are. I've got two films waiting to come out. One is uh, an Irish film um, called uh, Four Mothers, and uh, another one is uh, uh, a Belgian film. Well, it's made in Belgium, and uh, very, very funny. And uh, so that's waiting to happen, waiting to come out. And then they just released uh, uh, the the Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, which is the prequel to. The Hunger Games, and I'm in the first ten minutes of that, <laughs> and and that I enjoyed very much, you know, um, and that was a fabulous thing to do. We 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 shot it in the old studio outside Berlin, which is where Leni Riefenstahl made all of her films, and. One of the drivers pointed out to me. He said, "You see that office on the second floor? It's a very, very old uh, situation." He, I said, "Yes." He said, "That's where Dr. Goebbels had his offices." And so it's the whole place like reeks of history, yes. you know. And uh, even though I would never be a supporter of Dr. Goebbels, but it was fascinating to to know that we were actually working in the same building in the same place where particularly Leni Riefenstahl who was you know too bad that she was an, the Nazi's pet but um, where she was a fantastic filmmaker and director yes she was mm-hmm. yeah 
when you walk down the streets of Berlin, I did a, wa- a walking tour, which I'd encourage anybody to do if they're able to walk well, is to go on the walking tour. And the guide who was German said, the cobblestones you're standing on are the cobblestones that were here in 1939, in 1940, 41. Mm-hmm. As, as those parades, and he had the picture, he has a, carried a book, a laminated book with him. And he opened and this, we were standing on the street. So you're living, you're, you're right in the middle of history. And so that's why I know yes. what you mean. Oh, yes. It's, it's, a, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. You, you talk about the Hunger Games, which I, you kind of trips off your tongue a little bit. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, talked about, uh, I just went back and did a Broadway play. That's huge. <laughs> <laughs> You've made four films in the last, I, I, you, know, I, you know, in your career, and, and I say your career in the present tense, you've always You've never been stuck in one particular idiom or genre. You, you'll theatre, film, TV. It's it's Emmy Awards season now. Yes. And you are an Emmy winner. Y- yes. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just forgot that. <laughs> well, yes, I do have the statuette to prove it. <laughs> <coughs> Would you like a little drink of water there? Excuse me. Rich Man, Poor Man is something that that's what you want the, the Emmy for. But Rich Man, Poor Man, particularly it was shown on RTE back in the in the 70s and 80s. Um, it was huge. It was one of those yes. big, big miniseries, mm-hmm. huge miniseries. Roots was the other one that ran the, around that kind of uh, era. Rich Man, Poor Man came first. It was it was modelled, as it were, on um, Upstairs, Downstairs, which was the first long form um Series oh. that was done on uh, certainly on American television, and then the uh, the original um, Rich Man Poor Man was done. It, and a wonderful cast. Peter Strauss was was uh, one of the cast there. Peter as well. Strauss and uh, Nick Nolte, very made young Nick's Nick career, Nolte. Yes. Yeah, uh, yes, indeed. Very handsome Nick Nolte and Peter Strauss. Very handsome. Oh yes, he was and was <laughs> he, is. I mean, he's he's got a peculiar. He had a peculiar face, you know, and a wonderful shock of blonde hair. <laughs> I watched, we, we watched the Emmys and the highlights of the Emmys and the other, it's award season in the United States. Mm-hmm. We watched some of them, um, a huge glamorous affair with the red carpet. What, do you remember your visit to the Emmys? Um, I, <laughs> actually, I, I do remember because the man who handed me my Emmy um, mispronounced my name. And so... I thought that they should have given him lessons in how to say Fenula Flanagan, you know, but uh, then I sort of took it upon myself to say, it's Fenula Flanagan, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, please, it was, uh, it was funny. It was a funny evening and... Um, yeah, I, 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 award ceremonies, and I think those kind of award ceremonies, probably at that time, was a great reason to get together with, with friends from the, the business, who all assembled on the night. Yes, well, actually, there weren't very many Irish friends at that time in, uh, certainly not in uh, Los Angeles, and uh, it prior to, um, let's see, what was it? It was. Uh, uh, well, he went to jail. I've forgotten his name, even though I did two pictures for him. Um, anyway, yeah. p- prior to uh, Miramax, yeah. Miramax is what brought um, uh, European actors into Los Angeles to play in American films. Prior to that, you hardly ever saw uh, a European face 
uh, and you certainly didn't see any non-white faces in in American films. And so, and even when I came along, it was very difficult. It was very, very difficult to break into um, American actors. Either did film or they did TV. Nobody did both, you know. And uh, so I was the exception if you pro- that proved the rule. But you, but you you had to break yourself into uh, oh yes, in, I mean the yes, theater. indeed. You, you yeah. literally had to write your own play, star in your own play, yeah. <laughs> and then make a film of it. <laughs> that's true, and that's another long story for another time. <laughs> but as I say, those career choices you you were one, are one of the actors who do both. You do TV now. TV has become because of streaming and Netflix, mm-hmm. etc., and the other streamers have become big business now. And we see film stars and TV all the time. But it was unusual to appear in a film and the next year do a TV programme. It was looked down on in some ways. Oh, completely. And also, it's the long form that changed that, you know, uh, the long form of television that is much more like a movie and so and sometimes is is brought out as a movie and uh, more and more so. So that changed everything. I'm getting the impression that you probably have uh, another 55 projects ready to go and scripts this high piled on the table at all. Actually, no, I don't. Um, uh, no, somebody, people send me things that uh, they say, this is a wonderful book and why don't you adopt it and adapt it into a, a project for yourself? And I said, well, why don't you? You do that. <laughs> the amount of work that is like 10 years of your life that goes into adapting a book. At least when I did James Joyce's Women, that was it took 10 years before I could actually get it on paper and in a form that I could work with it on stage. But uh, that's what people mostly send me are tomes, huge tomes. <laughs> Worthy projects. 5,000 pages. Why don't you change this into a, a production? <laughs> why don't you? <laughs> why don't you? Just fire it straight back at you. There's a little text in if you don't mind me reading it. Uh, we live in Ockram in County Wicklow, dear Fanula. She's so gifted, but also a lovely lady. And we have our tickets ready for Sive, and that's from Pete and Barry. And we grew up in Rathmines and we used to do ballroom dancing in the cricket club. <laughs> so it's the ballroom of romance as well. We've seen... Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> uh, speaking of same, the the ballroom of romance was written up in, uh, I think it was in the Independent newspaper recently, fairly recently. And the building is so sad. It stands there in the middle of literally nowhere in, uh, in Mayo, I think it is. And uh, that's where they shot it. That's right. And that's where the, the actual story takes place um, can, I, can I ask you if you don't mind and you don't have to tell Quinto, but just your, your family are, are the, the boys etc the grandchildren great grandchildren are, are you missing them do they come over regularly well you know I bought this house in Wicklow thinking that they would all flock here on their uh, summer holidays but they all tend because they live in Los Angeles they all tend to go to Hawaii for their holidays <laughs> and I think why? I hate Hawaii. You know, how, how can you go there when there's Anakura? And uh, so anyway, they have all been here at some point. I have uh, I have three, um, grand, I have four grandchildren and I have uh, five great-grandchildren. Five? Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the eldest is uh, Mason is 12 and uh, uh, Cove is 10. And the only one who's called after anybody in the family <laughs> is little Finn, Fanula, and uh, <laughs> she's just seven. Ah, and do they get to see you on the screen? Do they? Oh, they do, yes. Um, they're not a bit impressed, you know. They just think that that's the way it should be, which I agree with. <laughs> <laughs> I just, and I'll let you go in a second, because you've been very kind and you've stayed with us for a long time as well. Um, when I said that you were coming in to a friend of mine last night, he said, do you know that's Data's mother? Yes, it's true. <laughs> I am Data's mom. <laughs> So for those who aren't star- Trekkies, this is, it's huge. I mean, the Trek, the Star Trek, an actor, and I'll remain nameless, had a very small part in Star Wars, an English actor, and he has lived off going to conventions yes. for, for his entire life, yes. the odd play. And I, then- I have not done that, but I've been encouraged to do it. And I said, well, what do I have to do? They said, you don't have to do anything. You just stand there and they all look at you. I thought, and they pay me for that? It's a bit similar to being on stage, but you don't have to speak and you don't have to learn any lines. And there's a picture of Data beside you. And even the actor who played Data might even be there with oh, you. Oh, he was wonderful. He was Brent. wonderful. Brent, yeah. 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 He's a wonderful, great actor. wonderful actor, Broadway actor. He did uh he did uh, Sundays in the Park with George. Oh, I mean he's you know he's sometime. He's, yeah. Is he a singer? Does he yes, sing as well? Yes, he is a singer. And of course in the in the um uh, episode that we did, uh one of the funny things was I don't even play the comb and we had to. I had to play the violin, <laughs> right? And he had to play the uh, the, the the flute. Those, flute, yes. And so we're meant to do a duet for the members of how they didn't la- pee themselves laughing. I don't know. <laughs> Patrick Stewart was sitting there, and I thought, surely he's peeing. And uh, so uh, the director said, "I just need you to play. I need you to play the uh, for the long shot." I said, okay, all right. And I, I just left the uh, the words aside and I was just concentrating on learning this. I think it was the girl with the flaxen hair that uh, we played. And so then uh, I thought, oh, my God, he's going to do the close-up now and everyone will see that I my finger movements are all wrong and I don't know how to play the violin. And, uh, and then the door opened and in walked two... They would be called uh, challenged people, but, but to me they were dwarfs. Two dwarfs walked yeah, little in, little people, little people, and they were dressed exactly as we were. And the director said to me, "Put your hands behind your back," and I did. And so uh, the uh, the the young woman came up and she stood behind me and she put her arms through. She dressed exactly as we were dressed. Put her arms through um, where my arms were like that, and she and she took the violin and sight unseen she played. You know the violin, and the similarly for Brent. You know, and so all we had to do was look passionately at each other, mother and son reunited in space. You know, <laughs> it is hysterical. It's probably the most work that they got that whole year. But, oh, um, that's fabulous! Yeah. And people don't. And I, again, we could be here all day, and I apologise, but they don't realise you've, you've been in three <laughs> three parts of Star Trek. You're playing two different characters. That's like, right. Know. I did. <laughs> 
but it must. I, and I know other actors. You say you must be sick of people talking to you about it. But I, I don't. I, I suspect when people come to you and say, "I saw you in Star Trek. I saw you in Richmond Poor Man," it, it's quite nice. Oh yes, well we do it for the audience, you know, and uh, if people recognise you in the street and they say, "I just want to say I like your work" or "I liked you in Star Trek" or whatever, and the best fun ever was uh, I was working in Providence, Rhode Island, and and I was I was doing a, a series there. TV series there and a few years ago and there was a group of I was told not to go down that street because there were hooligans there my mother would have called them hooligans and uh, so there was a group of young men they were probably like aged 14 to 17 on one corner and uh, so I'm walking along and the uh, studio person is walking beside me and she's saying I hope you won't come down this street on your own and at that moment, one of the guys on the far kitty corner from me said, yo, there's my mama. Uh. <laughs> and so they rushed over and they, you know, they wanted an autograph and wanted a photograph <laughs> and all of that. And so that's what it's about. You know, you bring joy to people. Before I let you go, I just want to read something that's been sent in. Fanula's Molly Bloom soliloquy is up there with the greatest of all time performances. Isn't that nice? Thank you. And please tell Fanula I loved seeing her guest appearance on Star Trek. Was always so proud when I saw her there from a Trekkie in Cork. Uh, Fanula was in The Others, of course, with Nicole Kidman, the scariest film I ever saw. Boo. She was... (laughs) (laughs) She was amazing. And one more. Hadn't a cliche that there was this connection to Rich Man, Poor Man, this Irish connection. I watched its first viewing in the UK in the 1970s. It launched Nick Nolte's career, basically. A great story. Brilliantly scripted, brilliantly acted. And I remember Fanula so fondly in it. Isn't that lovely? So, and there's there's about 250 of those texts, by the way. <laughs> if you want to see Fanula in Sive, which is what we were here to talk about, yes. um, it's, it opens in the Gaiety, on, uh, the Gaiety Theatre in Dublin on January 27th and it runs right through to the day before St. Patrick's Day on March 16th. Fanula Flanagan, thank you for coming into us. Total pleasure. Thank really, you. Really love seeing you. We'll take a break. Now, my guest this morning is someone who has always impressed me with her determination and her energy. But more than that, she's someone who is open and honest when life is less than, well, picture perfect. It's not easy when your career can demand that you, you have to literally put your best face forward. Good morning, Michelle Doherty. Oh, good morning, Shay. How are you doing? Well, That's a very she... nice intro. <laughs> That's all... Picture perfect is right and little do, little do people know. Huh? No, little do. Actually, we should really say good evening because you're speaking to us from, where are you speaking to us from? Make us all jealous. I am. I'm sitting in North Bondi in Sydney oh. <laughs> on the other side of the world. So it is, um, yeah, it's late at night here, so. And I always ask this to guests and people wonder why. What's the weather like there? Just to upset everybody. I really don't want to upset you right now. But um, actually, you know, this might make you feel better. There was torrential rain earlier, but um, it's probably about 20-something degrees, 26 degrees. Yeah. Sorry, I believe you guys are having a little bit of snow at the minute, especially yeah. up in my neck of the woods, up in Donegal. Oh, yes. They're getting a little bit of a yellow warning, I believe. So I've got my parents actually with me at the minute, which is lovely. So they're yeah. feeling very smug right now. Oh, lovely. And, and you have your husband, Mark, and your son, Max, there as well. Yeah, well, no, he's not my husband. We are living in sin. We, it's de facto. <laughs> um, I love that he got that little upgrade without actually having to spend the money on me. But anyway. <laughs> well, I love the thing of living in sin because once you get married, there's a lot less sin. Yeah, <laughs> very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. 
Um, look, that's where you are now. Let's let's go back to a little bit back. Let's go back to 2016. Uh, where were you yeah. in your life at that stage? So in 2016, we were very lucky. We got pregnant again. This was our second um, second child. Max uh, was our first, thank God, our firstborn. Anyway, at 11 weeks, um, obviously, I never thought any of this thing, these things could happen. But um, I started bleeding. And obviously got an awful fright and when I went to have a checkup done, there was no heartbeat. And they sent me off for a whole week just in case I got my dates wrong. And I know anybody who's trying for a baby don't get their dates wrong. Um, and I had to sit for a whole week and find out that I'd miscarried our, lo- our little baby. So um, that was the start of it. And then I went on to have three more miscarriages in a row. And I know for people who are trying and have a miscarriage, the excitement when you see that that line in your pregnancy test, you just automatically get carried away. You're like, you've already started imagining what this little one is going to be like. And it's very hard then to sort of deal with um, when it doesn't actually um, go ahead. So... So that was very tough. Now, my fourth miscarriage was in, um, we'd moved to Melbourne at that stage. And we'd started seeing a IVF specialist there. And when they did a little test on the baby, it actually um, had Turner syndrome, which just means it was a little girl and didn't have its reproductive organs. But that was my first sign that obviously my eggs were damaged and not of good quality anymore. So they proceeded then to look just you know, put us through three rounds of IVF just to, you know, we might be lucky, we might have got a good egg in there somewhere. And um, they all failed as well. You know, there's something that I can hear it in your voice, but, you know, a lot of people listening this morning will have experience of what you're talking about, particularly a miscarriage. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And and a a lot more people who have had to go through IVF will know even more because it is the most painful thing to go through. You're putting um, hormones, injecting hormones into your body every day. It's brutal. It's painful. Your your hormones are all over the place. Your emotions are all over the place. You're pinning all your hopes on this. You're, it's spending an absolute fortune because we all know it's not cheap to do either. And um, every time it fails, it's like another... I guess <laughs> punch in the stomach, basically. So that that was brutal. Yeah, I think it's a, it's probably especially for people listening as well, and for you, and for me actually, um, that each miscarriage is a loss, is a baby, yeah. is yeah, a potential. It's it's well, it's devastating. Oh, no, your hopes are high, sky high. Like this one's going to be fine, and and you know, like unfortunately, the statistics from miscarriage are massive. But I, I'd never faced it before. I'd never heard of anyone having a miscarriage, so I didn't actually realise the pain and the hurt that comes with it until you're actually in that situation yourself. And a lot of times as well, it feels like everybody else around you can just get pregnant and why is this keeping happening to me? You know, I'm a good mom, I'm a good person. Like, do I deserve to be going through all this? You're going through all of this sort of negative chat as well, going, why why is it happening to me though? 
and I think that sort of plays a big role in not being in a great place, basically. And I, I, you know, people want to find out if you're pregnant. They want to ask you, right? They literally really want to ask oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> Once it becomes public, it becomes kind of public property. And then if unfortunately yes. the pregnancy doesn't work out, that there is a miscarriage, then that's a kind of, you've got to go through that as well. It's constant reminder, yeah. Or like when I say this, I don't mean any harm, but you know, when somebody says to you, Oh, could you not have another wee one? <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, funny you do what I'm going through to try and have another wee one. Yeah, you know the insensitive comments, and I know that people don't mean it, but it's just, uh, I guess the more we talk about it, the more awareness that we create that it's, you know, maybe it's not something that you should just ask a new couple. They've been married for a few years or whatever, a couple that that you should feel should be having a baby. And also, it's not everybody's choice to have a child. So it's just, to, I guess, to be a bit more mindful about making these little comments. How was Mark through these the, these events to the miscarriage and IVF? Um, so Mark is <laughs> like a, your typical man, doesn't really talk about it. So, yes, yeah, suppose you feel then that there's a distance between you or, or there's a little bit of resentment. It's like, oh, it's just happening to me. It's my body. You know, you're not showing any emotion. So I'm the only one that's going through this. So, yeah, it's tough. Um, and I guess maybe selfish on my part that I wasn't really checking in on him and asking if he was okay or how he was coping with it. It was just all about me, basically. But unfortunately, that's where I was at that time. And so, particularly with with your job as well, I know like we watched you on Expose. You're a model by profession. You, of course, have other things that you do as well. But you're very much front facing. People are used mm-hmm. to seeing you looking well, smiling, putting, yes. putting up. I suppose what, what we call fronting. Absolutely, um, and I am the queen of it. Um, and in fact, the worst pain that I'm probably in, I'm putting on the best show of my life, and everything's fine. And oh, nothing to see here. Um, when you mention that picture perfect comment, it's it's funny because everyone looks at you and thinks you have this perfect life, and you know you've got a lovely partner and a beautiful son, and like what more could you ask for? You've got everything, but it's just <laughs> it's not always the way it is behind the scenes. Behind, well, literally behind the scenes because you're an actor too, so your yeah. your acting skills uh, come in, yeah, into play. For sure, so yeah. you've gone you've gone through four miscarriages. Yeah. You've gone through the cycles of IVF. What's the next step then in in trying to have a baby? So um, then we had to make a really tough decision then about um, thinking about having an egg donor, which didn't really sit well with me. I, you just feel like a failure and something like. <laughs> You know, oh my God, I can't believe that I've had to go to this stage. But I guess that's how much I really wanted a sibling for Max. And I absolutely love children. And I couldn't accept that this was my path. And Mark, you know, just as he said it to me, he was like, Michelle, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be growing inside your belly. Your blood will be flowing through it. It's going to hear, you know, it's going to hear you all the time. And so I sort of came around to the idea. So... We did a bit of research and because we were flying home to Ireland, we picked um, somewhere along our way um, to Ireland because it's very hard to do egg donor in Australia. So we picked Prague and we go on our journey and we get three A-plus embryos. And now I'm like, okay, I'm out of the equation. 
and my bad eggs are out of the equation. My body's obviously fine because I carried Max, no problem. And I, I, I think this is the hardest part for me because it was almost like I've taken everything out of the equation that's going to go wrong. Surely this is this is just going to be a walk in the park. So we transfer one, and then you're not allowed to do a test for two weeks. But of course, inside you're like, oh, come on. And when I did the test, it came up negative. And everyone was given out to me going, you were told to wait for the two weeks. So then I had to make the journey back to Melbourne and do the test after the 14 days. And it was negative again. And <laughs> I just, I, I remember screaming and crying um, with the actual despair and disappointment. Um, couldn't understand why this could possibly be happening. And in the meantime, you're also preparing your body with IVF injections and you're after putting your body through the mill again and this is the outcome and it's just really hard to accept so I was really angry after that and then I didn't want to leave too much time between the next one did the journey on my own this time which was pretty hard but um, a really lovely friend of mine came with me for the transfer and again no no success and, and as I said I think this was harder nearly than the IVF no this has to work um, and then COVID happened and we um, we couldn't get back for our last one. So a couple of years passed and I'd like to say it was time for me to heal. But I think when I knew that that one was still sitting there, I sort of had this hope, I guess. So I just kept the hope and just, yeah, kept going. Did you get back then to, to Prague? So then we were flying back after two years since we'd seen our family. So... We were doing the journey again and had our transfer and I'd found out that no, it didn't work again. And that was, that just broke me completely then because I knew that was my last, my last shot, our last shot, should I say. Um, and yeah, that was, that was, yeah, breakdown point for me. So financially, I'm sure it's very taxing on you financially, emotionally, Mm-hmm. horrendous and how how are you in market mm-hmm. at this stage oh we're just I think I'm just completely numb and it's almost like we don't know what to say to each other we actually don't know what to say to each other at this stage and there's so much anger and resentment inside of me so probably not the easiest person to be around either and, and that is the big thing about um, IVF and these fertility journeys you know the hurt and pain that goes goes on between couples as well because it's you know you just don't know what to say to each other yeah, <laughs> and um and there's no explanation and you're just so angry and you're like you're angry at the world you're angry at everybody and of course you're going to take it out on the person closest to you mm-hmm. not that that's okay um but it was really tough on our relationship yeah and then you're looking for something to numb the pain a couple of glasses of wine yeah yeah, yeah, and I was like, it's fine, I'll just drink, it'll be fine, I'll take away the pain. Um, and it took away the pain that night, and then you'd be like, right, the pain's back tonight, I'm going to have to have another drink. Um, and then didn't want to see anybody, didn't really want to talk to anybody, because that, I had to put on that show, pretending everything was fine. And, you know, I just actually got tired of listening to myself like being sad, you know, when I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody about it because first of all, unless you've gone through the same experience, you have no idea what it's like. Um, You've no idea what to say to the person and that's hard. 
and so then it's not that people don't want to see you either, but they just don't know what to say to you. And as I always say to, like, you know, anyone that's going through it, like, we don't want you to have answers. We don't expect you to have answers. We just want you to sit with us. We just want you to check in on us. We just want you to like, say, I'm here if, if you need anything. But it, it makes people uncomfortable. And so you just say nothing. And even if my family was checking on me, I'd keep my conversations really short and upbeat. And then it was like, the minute the phone call would be done, it would be like crying and, yeah, um, just self-soothing. Um, which is not a good good way to go either because that's just um, that's just a, an easy fix and it doesn't last long enough. Um, so it was, it was terrifying. Like, uh, and it was terrifying probably for Mark to be watching as well. Even though you think you're not being secretive, but you're hiding, covering it up well. But you're, you are at the other end of the world. Your family is back. Yes. In, your family's back in Donegal. I'm sure you have good friends there, but it's not the same as having your mommy around. And having, yeah, having, no, absolutely. Having, yeah. That, having that chat. And then you, you don't want to be a burden to them because you don't want them to be worrying about you. So exactly. you just cover everything up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you don't want, you don't want the last thing you want to say, yeah. I'm worried about you. And then you go, oh my God, now I'm worried about you worrying about me. Then your other best friend, Mark, is right in the middle of it with you. So at what point do you think, I think I might need some help? I, I think he he just stepped on he and he said, Michelle, like, you know, you're going on as if, as if you're fine, but you're not fine. And I feel it's a lot that you've been through that we perhaps need to speak to somebody about it. So we decided to go speak to somebody um, individually first. And, um, and I met this amazing um, psychotherapist who I think for the first time, for the first time in all of this, um, he just listened and he didn't try to fix things and he just um and I just I was exhausted as well because when I'm when I'm upset about something I clean <laughs> and I make myself really really busy to try and distract myself and I was physically exhausted and emotionally exhausted and um and so I went into him and I said um, I feel like I need to go on a yoga retreat <laughs> for a weekend you know and that might make me feel better and he's looking at me to say a what? A yoga retreat? Okay. And then he said the most powerful words. He was like, you know, you've literally been through trauma after trauma. And it's like, and every time, he said, you've been treading water for eight years. And every time you try to get your head above water, you're being pushed back down again. So you're coming back up again and paddling along for a little bit. And then off you go again. And he said, he said, I really hope you don't take this the wrong way. He said, but this is amazing facility that I want to suggest to you. He said a rehab, and I was like, "What? Do you think I'm an alcoholic?" And he was like, "No, not at all." He said, "But you have been through so much. If you don't do something about this, something bad is going to happen." And for the first time, I actually was like, "Okay, I need to listen to someone who's professional and knows what they're talking about." So he suggested this place, and normally I'd put it on the long finger. It was coming up to Christmas, and obviously the thoughts of leaving Max, I was like, "I can't leave my." My my child, um, and this gorgeous friend of mine. I had a chat with her, and she was like, "You're going." She was like, "We'll be here for Mark. We'll be here for Max. You need to look after you." I just listened to her words, and I was like, "Okay." So I rang the place, and within a couple of days, I was going in there. No time to think about it. It was like I was just going in, and obviously that scared me. And I thought, "How?" 
have I ended up in this place? Like, this is the worst. But anyway, I was willing to do whatever it took because as my journey didn't work out the way I thought, I'm still a mum to my beautiful wee boy who needs me more than anything. How do you tell him you're going to be gone for three weeks? So I spoke to the psychotherapist about it and I said, you know, what do I do? And he said, look, the best thing to do is just be honest. And so I said, you know, the way mommy gets upset a lot about, you know, not being able to have another baby and brother or sister for you. And I said, mommy just really feels like she needs to speak to someone who can help her try and try and be able to deal with this better because I want to be a better mom for you and I want to be a better partner for your dad. And um, I have to go away for three weeks um, to talk to these doctors and they're going to help me get better. And so I explained it really honestly, and it has been a big lesson for me for parenting. You know, like stop protecting them. It's better maybe just to be honest. And it made it a little bit easier on him, actually. I know there are people listening to this this morning for and for a variety of reasons, as you've said, not necessarily alcohol, but for all the trauma that maybe need to go in, go yeah. somewhere for a couple of weeks to have inpatient treatment. Yeah. And they're really scared. They're really worried. And like, you know what? The embarrassment. I was like, how do I tell my family that this is where I am right now? And I just thought, you know what? This is my life and this, I only get one shot at this life and I don't want to be going around suffering with my mental health and not knowing how to deal with things. And that's why I always say, please, please talk to someone. I know sometimes we feel there's not enough support there, but if you search hard enough, there is. Like, even when I talk about this now, it does come a big embarrassing part with it. But being on the other side of it now, and the benefits that I have gained from that facility, I will never be able to explain to someone. And not just me, like anybody that I met in there, like we all looked after each other and we all supported each other. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for them. And I just feel, don't be afraid to let yourself down and just go, right, I'm not in a good place and I need I need somebody to talk to and I'm, I'm not continuing like this. I suppose for, for many people, the thought of rehab is probably what they've seen on television and usually American television where they arrive and drop yeah, off by a car and, and yeah. two, two men in white coats yeah. come out and, and bring you in and yeah, take, take everything off you. That isn't the case. No, and, and I can vouch for that. And as I said, it's not just for um, alcohol and gambling and drug addiction. It's for extreme anxiety, trauma, grief, yeah, and so much more. And I think, as I said, like, I was so naive going in there. I was like, oh, my God, like, I cannot believe I'm going into someplace like this. The safety that I felt in that place, because, you know, like, you're going, you know, like, like I was able, because I had a small uh, child, I was allowed to just call Max every evening. But then I found that really tough because it was kind of upsetting to hear his wee voice and I'm stuck in this place. But... Um, yeah, so you've no mobile phone, you've no TV, you've nothing, and how you can adapt to that life almost actually got to the stage that I was scared to come out. <laughs> we have this lovely compassion for each other and empathy, and unfortunately the real world isn't like that. So it was an, a massive eye-opener, probably one of the best things I've ever done. Terrifying, but yeah. one of the best things, yeah. You, you talked about, about fronting, and at what point within three weeks do you suddenly realise, actually, I'm not fronting now, I'm being... I'm being honest. When you break down and you hit rock bottom. <laughs> because everybody said it to me, they were like, oh my God, you've got such a lovely energy, such this, that and the other. And then when you actually have to tell your story and go through everything that's happened and you literally break, you're broke <laughs> to 
down on your knees going, oh my God. And they're like, right, this is what you need to learn from this. You cannot put on this front. It's not possible. You cannot continue, you cannot go through as much pain and grief as you've gone through and pretend everything's fine. It doesn't work that way. And if you think that you have to pretend to have this perfect life, they're like, one thing I need you to learn before you leave here is there is no such thing as perfect. So I have a terrible problem with not with perfection. I can't not be perfect. And maybe that's why this whole journey has been so upsetting for me also is because this doesn't happen to me. Everything works out for me. The what, what, sorry, what? And so it was a great lesson. There is no such thing as perfect. Stop trying to be perfect. So obviously this is a work in progress. Like there are days where I still have my bad days. Daily I have to journal. Daily I have to meditate. Um, I have to exercise a good few times a week just to kind of, you know, get my energy levels up. And um, I feel very blessed to be living by the sea because I get this massive energy from the sea. I think being a wee Donegal girl living up in Malnhead. <laughs> um, and so I get a lot of energy from the sea. So I'll do my little meditation by the sea and always have to be by the sea at some point in the day. Can I ask you a question? And, and you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but yeah. when those thoughts come, when you remember the grief, when you remember the, the babies that weren't born, what do you do differently now? Um, I think there's, they say there's five stages of grief and one of them is acceptance and I, I, I won't ever be able to accept that I haven't been able to have another child. I'm just able to live with it better because I I kind of think, okay, you've gone and, and you've done all this work on yourself because you want to be a better mom to Max and I put my heart and soul in being the best mom that I can be to him. I also... When I was in um, therapy, I had to write a letter to my unborn babies, but the ones that I miscarried. And that was extremely powerful. Um, very difficult, but extremely powerful. And it was because it felt like it gave them a life. Yeah. <laughs> it was my little baby. That was a baby that I was growing yeah. in there. Yeah. Um, and so I could acknowledge that they did exist in there. They will always be a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And um, and I try and talk to them. Um and I actually, I have one, one kind of buried at home in my parents' house and I'm under my nana's tree. Um, yeah, so when I go home to Donegal, I always get to go in and speak to that little one <laughs> under the tree. And my nana's looking after it now, so. Yeah. We did something similar, actually, yeah. with my dad's grave. Oh, yeah. So when we go to my dad's grave, then we have a little chat. Yeah, it's important to acknowledge what you've gone through. Um, I know not everybody's going to understand. And the sad thing for me is the amount of women that have reached out to me going, oh my God, this is the first time someone has actually put into words what this feels like. And, you know, because I'm not able to express it myself. And, and the whole point of me doing this was I'm not looking for a pity party by no means, but I feel it's not talked about. And, you know, the, the scary thing, she is, like, this isn't just happening in this day and age. It's just that we have more platforms to, you know, mm. tell our stories. Whereas, I guarantee if you talk to ladies 40, 50, 60 years ago, they've gone through the same thing, but it just wasn't talked about. And and I just, I don't think that's fair because it is painful. And anybody that spoke to them, trying to tell them to make sure, you know, if they can look up some support groups and... I, I think the GP is a great place to start. If you have, well, look, if you have a GP, you can talk to <laughs> And the referral to the psychotherapist for you started you. 
on that road to recovery. Changed my life, yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. So what, what's what's happening now? You're modelling, acting, photography, well, all the things, all the all your your the strings to your bow. What are you oh What are you doing God, now? Jack of all trades, master of no <laughs> more more like it. Um, obviously, my most important job in the world is being a mom. And then I have recently made a decision to start counselling because I got so much. I can't even put into words the change that these people made to my life, the psychotherapist that I dealt with in this facility, that it started me thinking, oh my God, imagine if I could just give a tiny little bit of that back. And I do feel like I do have a lot of empathy and I do have a lot of, um, um, I'm easy to talk to. So I thought, right, let's, um, so I've, I've gone back to start studying and I'm going to study to be a counsellor and then um, see where that takes me. And also, I try and and um, try and see. And I remember speaking to a counsellor years ago, and she's, you know, she was trying to say to me, you know, maybe a job with children might be because I love children. And she's like, maybe that's what you need to be doing. And you know, imagine being a counsellor for young people that you could actually be there for them so that they can their story early on it might actually be able to help them a little bit later in life I, I just thought would not be very nice Michelle thanks for taking the time to take the call in Australia this morning this, this evening <laughs> I can go to bed now Shane just way past my bed <laughs> and can I just say you've been incredibly honest um, and I'm sure there are thousands of people listening this morning who've been touched by what you've said yeah. and as you said uh, there are resources available um you know, like yes. like the Mis- Miscarriage Association, Ireland Miscarriage. Ie, who I, yes. I was involved with, and there there are lots of resources. The GP is a great resource, mm-hmm. and friends and family will give you some. Hopefully, give yeah. you a good steer as well. Can I can I ask you, uh, Mum and Dad, what have you had them up to the last couple of few, few days? You've had them. Where have you been bringing them? So they're off to the um, they're off to Circular Quay in the morning to see the Harbour Bridge and the uh, Upper House. And they've been doing the walk from Bondi to Bronte. I've nearly got them killed here. God love them. Um, and we live in a, an apartment that has like a communal pool. So they've been, the first couple of days, they were exhausted. So they were just happy chilling out there. <laughs> but our apartment block is like Melrose Place. It never stops. And they nearly know everybody in the apartment block at this stage. <laughs> so it's actually very funny. Uh, listen, they're from Donegal. Um, what would yeah. you expect? Yeah, exactly, exactly. The gift of the gas. But anyway, they're having a great time and it's just so lovely having them here. And Max is loving having his family and granddad. So it's just amazing, yeah. Good. Well, we all here wish you and Mark and Max well. And, uh, and hopefully, Thank you, hopefully Shane, we get I really appreciate it. Not at all. Hopefully we get to talk to you about other things in the future. In a little bit happier circumstances, exactly, yeah. Brilliant. Michelle Doherty, thanks, thanks for joining Shane, us this morning. Take care. The text number is 51551. Ah, oh, yes, indeed. Yes. One way to relieve restless legs, I've discovered, we did it, we mentioned restless legs earlier, is to lie on your back with your bum pressed against a wall or door and lift your legs vertically, leaning against it for around 10 minutes or so. Hang on, I've got to work that out. So lie on your back. Tracy Clifford's here. She's trying to figure it out as well. She's shifting around in her chair. Lie, lie with your back, lie on your back with your bum pressed against a wall or door. And make sure there's no kids in the house who want to keep coming in the door. I'm going to go with behind the door. And lift your legs vertically, leaning against it for about 10 minutes or so. Does that sound right, Tracy? That, that sounds interesting. A, it'll give your legs a fresh blast of oxygen 
when you stand up. Shoulder stands also work if you're young and fit enough, which would be obviously for me. Uh, Keith from Cornwall. In relation to restless, we're getting a huge amount of reaction to restless legs. In relation to restless leg syndrome, several texts are saying that if you get your bloods done by your GP, it's very important. Sometimes restless legs can be caused by deficiencies in certain vitamins and in some cases magnesium deficiency. Shay, uh, can I just say how wonderf- wonderfully Utterly wonderful, those two girls are. Absolutely brilliant, says Brida. And those two young scientists are so wonderful. Their empathy and depth of character is so inspirational, says David and Wicklow. And what school are they from? They're from Roscommon Community School, a relatively new school. Where are you from, Tracy? I'm from Dublin. I'm from the north side of Dublin on the Navin Road. Okay. That's Go me. the north side. Go the north side. It's the north sider show today. I don't want to hear anything about the south side today. It's all the north sider show. How are you? I'm great. Happy Friday to you, Shay. Happy Friday to you. Well, you, you. You do a Friday show, particularly when you're doing your Friday. I do. We bang out the tunes on 2FM <laughs> on a Friday. We have a little rave. That's what we do. And I'm here to talk about music with you today because yeah. obviously you know your stuff about music. You play well, great music in the morning. Listen, we've just done, both done promos for one for Rising Time and one for your show. There you I go. I love it. That's, there you go. that's what we're here to do. And it's also to great here to hear kneecap on Radio 1 as well. After Absolutely loving that uh, with Green fan, Tatton. Big fans upstairs as well. So yeah, oh, they're great. Um, are you a regular festival goer? Oh God, I've done 20 years experience of of trudging through fields in, in wellies. I have been to every festival in Ireland, around Europe and over to Glastonbury as well. So I'm well prepared for this festival slot to chat to you today, Jay. <laughs> I've had welly foot, I've had trench foot, I've, you know. <laughs> I've done it all. I've been what? soaking in a tent. Uh, yeah, this is all the experience I've done to talk about festivals. That's what you get from wearing wellies for the whole weekend, you know? Yeah. yeah. And sleeping in a wet tent. Sleeping. In, I've danced myself dry at festivals. I've been I've been in puddles of mud. Yeah, I, I've done it all. <laughs> I feel like we should have the music playing under this. I have done it all. Coachella was announced, the lineup for Coachella. So explain to what Coachella is for people who are listening who don't know what Coachella is. Well, Coachella is a festival that happens in America. And I think it's so prominent over these shores as well, because obviously through social media, everybody who's everybody goes to Coachella. There is this massive big wheel where everybody gets the famous photograph there. And one thing that is quite iconic about Coachella is that you get two festivals uh, twice. So you get, uh, it's a weekend in April on one date and then two weeks later they have the same lineup again. Ooh. So if people can't go one date for the whole weekend, they can go in two weeks' time to the next one as well. So Lana Del Rey is going to be headlining. Blur are playing as well uh, for this year's Coachella. But most interestingly, that at the end of, of the festival lineup, they just had no doubt so this is Gwen Stefani reforming with no doubt. Obviously, that band got together in what 1989. They haven't played since 2015. Uh, there's no day of what they're going to be or where they're going to be playing, whether it's the Friday, Saturday, or Sunday of Coachella. So this is possibly their big reunion gig. So that's the big news. <gasps> that's big news for Coachella. Are you breaking that news? I don't think I'm breaking it, but I think everybody is just excited to see Gwen Stefani perform on no, stage you, you, again. You just need to say you are breaking it. <laughs> like the next time I I'm ask breaking you, it. you're breaking the news. It's Tracy Clifford from Two F. Um, Marty Wheeler in the morning. Yeah, I love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> you have you been to Coachella? I haven't been to Coachella. Would you like to go? Um, I don't know. I don't know because the lineup for me this year is just a little bit too dancey, too electronic, and I, I'm not sure about being cold in a desert at night time. I know it's absolutely freezing. I've also heard as well that it's very strict compared to festivals in Ireland, Glastonbury, uh, and Europe. What as do well. you mean strict? In terms of of um, 
you know, you're not allowed to walk around, say, for example, with your with your beverage, whether it's alcohol or not. It's all in pens and it's quite strict. You can't have your plastic thing of warm Apparently beer. Apparently not. Standing no. at the front when someone bumps into you and spills it all over you. Exactly. No. You know, and maybe that's safer. Maybe that's more sustainable. Maybe that's tidier. Yeah. But that's uh, what Coachella Listen, is, is if like. They were, I'm not talking about Coachella, but generally, if you want to be sustainable and not affect the environment, don't have a bleeding festival in the middle of <laughs> and bring thousands and thousands of people in generators and diesel and crazy and lights and go into the wee small hours of the morning and cut down trees and, and cut the grass. And don't talk to me about sustainable and environmental. Yeah, don't have it. No, anyway, sorry. <laughs> but most festivals do have a sustainable yes, policy no, yes, in yes, terms yes. of cleaning up tents and everything at, at the end of festivals. <laughs> Greenpeace are heavily involved with um, uh, Glastonbury as well, which brings us on to Glastonbury. For people who don't yeah. like festivals, if you don't like festivals at all, this is the one too I think everybody might love because you can watch it in the, in the safety and in the warmth of your own sitting room. Oh, yeah. You know? Here's Elton. I've only been here three weeks and I've played loads of Elton clips. I love Have Elton. You? I love Elton John. Did you watch him then on the Sunday night performance for his last <sighs> ever? I have to say the coverage of Glastonbury, you don't have to go to Glastonbury yeah. and get involved in all that mud that you're talking about. You can watch it from exactly. home because the coverage is fab. And that's why I think Glastonbury is so special because people who probably have never even set foot in a field can feel like they are there. Now, I went in 2019 and Shay, I never want to go again because it was so perfect. The weather was perfect. The lineup was perfect. I got to see Stormzy do his iconic historical moment on stage. Hang the on, first. I have a clip. Okay. I have a clip. It's very Let's listen. This is Stormzy. <laughs> Help me out, please. We're going to take this to church and we're going to give God all the glory right now. We're giving God all the glory right now. Let's go, man. Help me out. I'm blinded by your grace. Sing along. Sing along. I'm blinded by your grace, by your grace. I'm blinded by your grace. I'm blinded by your If you just listen, listen very carefully. Is that me? That's you. I can hear the Irish accent. <laughs> That's me. Sing it now. Sing along. By your no, stop. Sing along. Stop. He's good. I One like thing him. I loved about that gig, um, I was there, but then when I watched it back and all the coverage when I came home and people were talking to me about it here, young and old fell in love with Stormzy that night. Yeah, I have, you know, I'd liked him before that. And I'd seen him on the scene and uh, small festivals around London, around the UK. But I just thought, there's somebody I could really get into and mm. really listen to. The lyrics, the poetry and the lyrics, I just... And he also used his platform that night to raise social issues from young black kids growing up in South London, the UK. Um, he really used his platform to, to bring a message. It's also the first ever grime British solo artist to perform at Glastonbury and headline as well. So it was a historical moment for Stormzy. Did you ever get to meet him? I did. I've interviewed him a couple of times. Ah. I've interviewed him a couple of times. He is a great guy. He's great. And he's so funny. We actually shared a, a plate of prawns in the <laughs> in the Morrison Hotel over the interview. That's my that's my claim to fame with Stormzy. You know, he's a lovely, lovely guy. And we had great chats. And uh, yeah, he's he's fantastic. I had a bad cup of coffee with Billy Joel. <laughs> well done. There you go. It's something. <laughs> 
got it in the cafe next door where his, his motorbike shop is in Long Island. That's Beautiful. that's right. for, for, uh, for another story. Wow. So that's Glastonbury, that Coachella. That is Glastonbury and Coachella. But let's bring it home to Ireland, shall we? Because I think that Ireland does so well with festivals all around the country. Like Electric Picnic is sold out, even without the lineup being announced for yeah, this year. And a change in date. A change in date this year as well for the first time ever. And I'm wondering, is that because we've got Coldplay happening in Croke Park? I'm wondering, is that the reason why? But, some, I'm, but I'm not sure. But there look, is it's, a, it's a, a multi-multi-million euro operation. Um, exactly. So there's, there's reasons for things being done. But the date has been changed. What, do so you have the new dates? I don't have the new dates actually. Oh, we get the new no, dates. No, I yeah. don't. But they, it is sold out. Um, it also has raised its capacity to like 80,000. So another 5,000. Another 5,000 as well. And you know what? Last year, I think, was a great, great festival as well to, to for Electric Picnic because for once in the whole time I've ever gone to Electric Picnic, the sun shone from the Friday to the Sunday. Was it there. was yeah. absolutely glorious of a yeah. weekend. Billie Eilish performed uh, on the Friday night. and But talking about Irish music down there at Electric Picnic and these guys will be performing at festivals all around as well. Belters only have really, really brought the Irish dance scene to the forefront. They sold out uh, an October gig in the Three Arena um, in minutes and they were the first band to get to number one, Irish dance band to get to number one in 23 years wow. uh, with Make Me Feel Good featuring Jazzy. And they packed out a tent at Electric Picnic with Jazzy then last year as well. And she's also up for an Orsi Choice Music Prize Song of the Year nod as well too. Can I give a, 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 an endorsement to to electric picnic, not because of, we don't get anything, we go along, enjoy it. But as a person who's, I'm 51, um, I wouldn't be a regular festival goer. I have to say, I love electric picnic. Yeah. I love it because there's so much to do. There's so many things. There's a spoken word, there's food exhibitions, there's a comedy tent. You don't pay anything extra. You pay your ticket, which is a significant amount of money. You pay your ticket, and that's fine because you actually really get value at electric picnic. Altogether now is brilliant as well, but I just, there's something about electric picnic, and every year it seems to get bigger. It, it, you know, I always call electric picnic like a playground for adults. You well, know, I, it's for a weekend. You just leave your responsibilities at the door, whether it's electric picnic, <laughs> altogether now, or another one that I want to actually mention. Is a gorgeous one called Beyond the Pale. It's in uh, Glendalough um, in County Wicklow. The lineup this year is Jungle, Jesse Ware, Soul Wax, and a load of Irish artists as well, like The Scratch, Alvaredi, Dahi. Really nice electronic Irish music there yeah. as well. It's a small festival. This is twelve thousand people. Okay, uh, but it's a it's a beautiful boutique festival, and like you say, festivals now. They could be music, but their arts, their poetry, their comedy, their food. Like, go away from your dodgy burger. You can have, like, your lobster roll and your crab claws now at well a cooked, festival. Well-cooked dodgy burger. Well-cooked dodgy burger, exactly, with but, no disclaimer. Uh, electric picnic. We just went for a wander through the woods, and there's bands playing in the woods. This is during the day now, not just at nighttime. We have great value during the day. I went through this, but we went, went to this art installation, which was an entire streetscape of shops yeah. that were broken down and only sold second-hand goods. Yeah, that's it. With people with sad faces there yeah. behind. I was like, what's this? What's this? But there's uh, all different areas. There's a dance music area. There is um, the Salty Dog area. You will see anybody performing on like a shipwreck. And you can go down to like the other trailer park area where you'll get some sort of ska music. Yeah. There's caravans there. There's something for absolutely everyone. I think it's testament to Electric Picnic 
that it is also um, sold out before the lineup. I wonder if you there. want to look after your body. If you want to look after your body, you can head down to Body and Soul. Now, Body and Soul is always on the dates of the summer solstice, but this year it's changed its dates to the week before. Okay. And I actually think the reason why it made it change the dates uh, is because it clashes with Beyond the Pale, and they did that last year. So, Body yeah. and Soul, they've quietly announced that they are going to be um, doing the festival this year. No lineup just as yet. But if you like boutique, small festivals to mind your body and your soul with eclectic music, Body and Soul is for you. I was I went to Body and Soul and someone gave me a, a voucher because you have to pay for these. It's a couple of small things you pay for was a wood-fired hot tub. Lovely. In the woods. Look at you. No, I didn't. There. I didn't want anybody to look at me, so I didn't do it. <laughs> I'd have to sit there fully clothed. I don't want any, nobody needs to see that. But isn't it amazing? People have this like preconceived idea about a festival, but there you could sit there in a t- hot tub in your jocks, <laughs> eating your lobster roll. Do you, do, you, know? do you surf? I don't surf, but I do like to go to music in Bundoran uh, to see sessions. <laughs> The thing about this festival is in Bundoran, and I like to call it Fundoran when you're up in Bundoran, um, they've got a great lineup of music. And I mean, it could be pop, it could be Johnny Marr, it could be, you know, an Irish best selling uh, artist at the moment like Keen De Crow. It could be BLK, who's also sold out the Three Arena uh, in, in minutes for St. Patrick's Day. It's an eclectic mix of music like pop rave and a little bit of rock as well and you can it's a surf and sea festival yeah. so you can be standing there in the festival a little bit of sand between your toes and not trench foot and welly foot you know and then if you go into the into some of the hotels it's con- Irish country music is on that That's night it. and you can go dancing you can go dancing I know you, I don't know you don't know me well but I love a bit of country music and Do a bit you? of dancing oh, I love a bit of dancing well as well with the with the uh, sea sessions festival if you don't want to you know camp it out obviously this beautiful great northern hotel just cross the yeah. way oh, yeah, walk yeah. up there stay there hotels be fabulous. And bed and breakfast all the way around. yes so I actually quite like because we the Westport Festival is one I liked in the Westport House when you walk out the door you're in a town yeah because that's some of the festivals are in in the middle of a field somewhere mm. and you've got to get a bus here and there and the transport links have improved immensely over the years um, but I love I love Bundoran I have yeah to say. it's a of, fabulous that's one of my, and yeah. you, you get the local feel as well yeah. and you can buy all sorts of things on the street as well which any is, food you want which is kind of like other voices and I know we're talking about summer festivals but other, vo- other voices in Dingle every single year in December like that's just walking around a town stumbling into a little bar watching an Irish artist or an artist coming over from the UK and it's, it's on every it's single December it's yeah exactly <laughs> Love the aren't we a great place for music and yeah, and, and just and, we need, and more festivals. of it and Willie Clancy Festival and all those festivals yeah. as well do, do you go to Marley Park is a big one Longitude every year mm. and they, they take over half the park and the park remains open by the way because mm. I live up that way and people travel from all over the country you can see the coaches coming in with the names McGilligan's is there Kilkenny is there people from Waterford come along are you a Longitude fan or are you too old uh, thanks Jay thanks a million well, for I that why I say that thanks a because I, I have a, I have a, an, a, I have a sixteen-year-old. She's like, I'm a bit old for long to shoot this year. I was like, What do you mean you're too old? It's it's over eighteen. What are you I talking know, about? I know. I actually heard the same thing from a twenty-year-old going, Yeah, that's for kids. You're like, You're twenty. You're yeah. twenty. A great lineup this year. Mm, fab. You know, with with longitude, I think what they have done, it was. A, a festival that had a lot of rock acts before but they changed it to dance and hip hop now and last year it was absolutely amazing because Calvin Harris played and for a lot of people who haven't seen Calvin Harris in a long time you probably heard him in the background I was, Well <laughs> I actually did I did go along because of a concerned parent were you? When I went along then I had to hide in a bar around the back where there was old people all hiding together So Shay, were you raving to Calvin <laughs> Harris at Longitude? I'm a Calvin Harris fan I have to say but they did change the age demographic within the in the place but there was one particular bar it was like a Bacardi bar just down the the back around the corner and as you went in there you could see all the outfits 
<laughs> waiting. We're going, who, who are you here with? <laughs> oh, she's 16. She's on her own. I told her to come back. But I don't know where she's gone. She's gone to get pizza. She's meeting her friends. So, you know, I love all that. If hip hop is the music that you love or if, you know, the people in your life who are younger than you love, then this is the festival uh, to be. You're like, you'd get the Cardi B's here. Doja Cat. Belcher's only played there as well. Like uh, they had Travis Scott over the past couple of years as well. So Aesop Rocky. Like it's, it's a huge festival for, for hip hop. I got the dates for Electric Picnic. Friday the 16th to Sunday the 18th. But you haven't got a ticket. You're not going to get a ticket unless... You'd, I think there's the charity cycle. There's the charity cycle. There might be still a few places left that. If you raise money and do a charity cycle, you can cycle to Electric Picnic and there's a ticket involved in that. Check it out on the website as well. Thanks, Siobhan, for that. Um, now, I'm going to play you something because you were at this. All right, Tracy. I know. You were there. I was. You were in the sphere in Las Vegas. I know we're talking about festivals, but I do think that Las Vegas is like a playground for adults. So that kind of ties in with you two in the sphere in Las Vegas. They are, uh, they have extended their dates until March now. It was supposed to end in December. Look, I think that you two are absolutely fantastic when they are always at the forefront of technology. Like even Siobhan Hawk was telling me the other day, producer of the show was telling me that, you know, back in the time of the internet and its inception in the late 90s, like they... They, they had songs on the internet before people even knew they were there. So to have you two with this iconic sphere in, in Las Vegas, I think is a, a proud moment for Irish music. I, I'd even think that you two probably sit back and think after their 40 year career, there they are, like with this huge screen all behind them where people are just walking around being like, what is this? It's an immersive experience, Shay. Did like, you like Las Vegas? It was okay. But I loved the gig. You loved the gig. I loved the gig. Yes. Las Vegas is possibly not for me, especially like when it's $10 for a can of Coke Zero. Do you know what I mean? Like it's an expensive place. It's an expensive, people have this thing that it's like all full of buffets and cheap food and you free drink. Not at all. Not at all. But with you two in the sphere, it's an immersive experience. Every seat is a good seat in this place. So tickets start from $100 up to, you know, up to the thousands. But wherever you are in the sphere, you will have a great experience. I've never heard you two sound so crisp. Oh, crisp. So crisp, you know. Okay. The sound is that good. And the sound is right behind every single seat. So wherever you are in the sphere, you will have, have an amazing time. And the visuals are out of this world. Okay, And Adele is playing, I think, at the same time. I, I heard people saying, <laughs> nobody I know, are going to go and see that and see Adele as well. So you go, go Adele, you go you go you two, you go to see Kylie because she was doing a residency in the Venetian too. Look, they're all there. And I actually think Kylie might... She might be a, a, a headliner for Glastonbury. I think she's had a great I'd year. I'd love to see Kylie. I'd like Never to see seen Kylie. Her. Love Same. to see Kylie. Independence. Independence in Mitchelstown's a brilliant festival based in a town. I saw Public Enemy queuing for a carvery on the Sunday oh, in the local hotel. Independence. <laughs> Independence. Yeah, it's so it's good. But this year they're on a little hiatus. <laughs> they um, they had a queuing for a carvery on a Sunday in a local hotel before they headlined the festival. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to come back with loads more texts. <laughs> 
Uh, Stormzy is mentioned in the text. Wow, that's rare. I'd love to go to hear him. You're 100% right. Coachella is very damaging to what's a delicate desert ecosystem. The whole concept uses loads and loads of energy and creates so much rubbish, etc. So uh, I think that's that's a fair a fair comment. We were talking, listen, we were talking about Jazzy during the break. I was in the club. Oh. <laughs> Something in the bar. She's great. She is great. And 2023 was just an amazing year for her. Number one singles, first female in Ireland in 14 years to get to number one. 14 years to get to number one. Overnight success. Overnight success. <laughs> what about uh, ABBA Voyage in London? It's an amazing, says Desi in, in Leitrim. Was that a festival though? I suppose you can make it an ABBA festival. I went with my mom actually in September. Oh, I met your mommy, she's lovely. She is, uh, like, she's the biggest ABBA fan. If you've, obviously, because when she was growing up, like, you never got to see, ABBA didn't come here, or if they did, she, she didn't yeah. go. Um, and it was like a concert for people who loved ABBA back in the day. It's like, I think it was amazing with the holograms. It's so, so good. It's, it's, it's actually quite... I don't know how they do it with the technology is um, amazing. I'm just going to London in general. I love, I absolutely love London. Last time I was, I was there, um, we just did like free stuff and you could pack free stuff in all weekend. BLK, AK Zach Coughlin is yes. a DJ taking the techno world by absolutely. storm from Tipperary. Absolutely. Montip as well. Yeah, he sold out the three arena for St. Patrick's Day. Hannah Lang and uh, himself will be playing there on St. Patrick's Day. Like for a hard techno artist and a solo DJ to do that on his own and to sell out on his own is a feet in itself well done to him Listen we've got a, a minute left tell, tell us about Europe Go to Europe I think if you want to get all festivals together go to Primavera in Barcelona I mean every single act that is doing the festival circuit pops up in Primavera we've got Pulp we've got Vampire Weekend Peggy Goo Lana Del Rey The National Disclosure Troy Sivan PJ Harvey SZA if you want to just get a cheap flight cheap ticket head over to Primavera Sound in Barcelona a beautiful city beside the beach it's got absolutely everything so that would be your holiday all sorted out and all your festivals Have you been there? I have been there. It's a, it's it's one of the best European festivals. It really is. Like, I mean, it's organised so well. It's right beside the beach. It's in the city. It's just, you know, facilitate, facilitated so well by transport. The lineup is always, always just immense. And, you know, the train lines in Barcelona are so good. You don't necessarily have to. You can stay in Santa Susana, which is north there. You can stay in different cheaper resorts and travel in. If you go to, I love Barcelona. Barcelona's and you don't have to camp either. You can just go to nice accommodation on the way home. Tracy you know? Clifford, when is your show on 2FM? Tell everybody. 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock today. We have... Uh, uh, Erica Cody on the show today and Ryan Hennessy from Picture This. Uh, and that's what we're okay, doing. Okay, obviously, the show today. You'll, you'll listen to Louise Duffy at 12 o'clock if you're listening to this program. Then listen back to Tracy on the player. Tracy, it's <laughs> been brilliant having wants. you in. Will you come in again? Of course, I'd love I to. I won't be here, but you can come in again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <Shay. laughs> Lovely having you in regards to Mom as well. Thank you so we'll much. See Shay. you around so much.